There is more in the heavens and the earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy. So Hamlet tells Horatio. It's appropriate that we begin in mystery. Almost a decade ago, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Lesotho. Working in Peace Corps is, is rewarding, um, but it doesn't move very quickly. Long days waiting for grant money to come through, the inherent strangeness of living in another culture and being um, passable at best in the language can combine into a sense of unreality in day-to-day -day life that I have not experienced in any other part of my life before or since. And I was in Lesotho in a unique time. When I arrived, my village was almost totally cut off from the outside world. The only two ways to get in and out of it, if you didn't have a horse, were a, a Cessna flight into the clinic, a medical flight into the clinic, or a five-mile walk where you would sit on the side of a road and hope that the, the one bus that would pass a day was coming that particular day. A few months into my time at site, uh, Vodacom, which is the, the South African telecom company, built a cell phone tower two villages over. Uh, and in a mountainous country, living on the side of a mountain, this meant I could get cell phone reception if I walked to the paddock a couple hundred yards away from my house. Uh, this, of course, meant uh, as soon as my family found out about this, that, that we suddenly had bi-weekly calls, regardless of whether it was 80 degrees outside or 10. And by the end of my service, two years later, I had cell phone reception in my house. They built a, a cell tower at my clinic. The entire country just skipped landlines. So I walked outside one night. This was about six months into my stay. Um, and as my parents tell it, um, they called. And the first thing that they heard from the other side of the line was me going, holy sh. I had walked outside on a clear night. The, the village was at 8,000 feet and had few lights. And I had looked up. And for a while in my adolescence, I had fancied myself an astronomer. So I spent a lot of time in Lesotho looking up at the stars. But on this particular night, I saw something that I had never seen before or after, a dot moving south to north across the sky, about three degrees per second, so about three sort of thumb widths per second. And as it moved, every second or so, a, a blue concentric circle radiated out from it. It resembled nothing so much as a very slow-moving rock skipped across a pond. The pond was the night sky. My family and much of Southern Africa can confirm that there, there was something. Um, the, the latter saw it. So if you look through the Johannesburg papers in October of 2008, uh, it's there. 
And my family heard me describing this thing in real time on the phone, going, you've got to, I wish I could. This was before camera phones. So <laughs> I was on a little Nokia, you know, candy bar shaped thing with a little LCD readout. One week later, uh, the United States Air Force announced that the unusual phenomenon seen in much of Southern Africa was the result of an Air Force rocket attempting an experimental fuel dump during launch. What I remember most about that moment was the odd mix of curiosity, befuddlement, and anxiety that seeing this thing in the sky that I did not have a, an explanation for brought up in me. Last month was this congregation's annual auction, which raised a significant amount of money. One of the offerings that I put up for bid was the choice of primary text for this week's sermon. The winning bid was Artie Sixkiller Clark's Encounters with Star People, a, a compilation of accounts of interviews with folks who claim to have contact with UFOs and extraterrestrial life. The book is compelling. Clark's writing is taught, the book reads like a, a novel, or rather a, a series of short stories tied together by an uh, overarching narrative of her research. Uh, Encounters presumes a root understanding, however, that I, I do not share fully that extraterrestrial life is currently visiting the Earth. And to her credit, Clark doesn't hide her, her beliefs or her agenda as a researcher. Many chapters begin with somebody approaching her and asking if she's the one collecting stories of encounters on reservations. Then the various people, one a chapter, tell her their stories, ranging from an alien left behind by its ship taking shelter in a snowplow to long-term relationships to moments of terror during military service. It's easy, I suppose, to find ways and reasons to have trouble taking these stories as, as factually accurate. Confirmation bias is an unavoidable concern. It's easy to, to see something that you're already looking for. So in traditional research, we start by forming a hypothesis that the researcher is agnostic towards, and then trying to either prove, or often far easier, disprove the research hypothesis. Let's see. So hypotheses are usually if-then statements. If I apply force to this pencil, it will not break. The results did not align with the hypothesis. Back to revise the hypothesis and test again. If I apply force to this pen, it will not break. Hypothesis supported. This is not possible with the kind of research Clark is doing, which depends solely on gaining the trust of her research subjects, trust that the only way you can gain it is by being very straightforward about your belief in the stories, or at least the underlying premise that extraterrestrial life is active before hearing the specifics of that story. The second reason I'm 
skeptical is, is less scientific but has more to do with human nature. Um, I had coffee with a colleague in Boston um, and she described her job as being a professional human. <laughs> uh, us UU ministers are in the business of sitting with the human condition on a day-to-day -day basis and we see a lot of it. Um, and it is my experience, completely subjective as this is, uh, that large groups of people are actually pretty bad at keeping secrets. <laughs> and many things that can appear as patterns are often a series of unrelated events that we find meaning, that we find a story in. We do this over and over, and so I'm hesitant to believe that a secret as large as extraterrestrial visitation would be hidden as well as it seems to be. But, as a side note, this is not actually to say that I believe we're alone in the universe. Actually, the reverse is probably true. Because the amateur astronomer in me is still there, and I am fascinated by a, a statistical thought experiment called the Drake Equation. Has anybody heard? Yeah. Okay, so the equation begins, n equals, where n is the number of civilizations in our galaxy, the average rate of star formation in our galaxy multiplied by the fraction of those stars that have planets multiplied by the average number of inhabitable, pl inhabitable planets per star multiplied by the fraction of planets that could support life multiplied by the fraction that do multiplied by the fraction of life that develops civilization. And that is a lot of math for a sermon. But the thing is, we actually have a pretty good sense of what those first fractions are now. We've been doing research on planetary formation for years. The Kepler mission, other, other space telescopes have been looking for extraterrestrial planets. So we have ideas of what those first couple variables are. A recent article in the journal Astrobiology used the most recent data on the, the rate of planetary formation and the size of the observable universe and came to this conclusion, human civilization is likely to be unique in the cosmos only if the odds of a civilization developing on a habitable planet are less than one in 10 billion trillion. This means, as one of the authors put it in an interview with a NASA press officer, that before our result, you'd be considered a pessimist if you imagined possibility of evolving a civilization on a planet where, say, one in a trillion. But even that guess, one chance in a trillion, implies that what has happened here on Earth with humanity has, in fact, happened about 10 billion times over in the universe. The universe is a big, big place. And there is a lot that we don't know. Critically, though, this thought experiment is a, is a way to think about the number of civilizations in the universe, not whether they have visited us. It seems most likely to me, given the, the scale of the universe, that they probably have not physically been here, or if they have, that they are sufficiently alien as to, as to appear unrecognizable. So I'm, I'm skeptical of the central claim Here's the rub. There's, a, there's this moment in Shakespeare where Hamlet turns to his friend from university, 
a character well-versed in the, the science of his time, to remark, there is more in the heavens and the earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. Proving a negative is impossible as a practical matter. And many of us live our lives based at least on propositions that are not provable. This has been the case for religion for a very long time. <laughs> I would not have a job <laughs> if the tenets of our lives had to be provable by testing hypotheses. This is important to me because it's part of the, the faith that we practice here in this place. Agnosticism gets a, a bad name sometimes as a, as a way of avoiding answering the hard questions. But ultimately, it's an expression of humility in the midst of the human condition. There's a whole lot that I do not have the answer to, factually. We've had a lot of memorial services in the last month. And I have been well aware of the answers that I do not have, have to give. I don't know what happens after we die. I don't know what happens before we were born. I don't know if God exists, what form that existence takes. I don't know if prayers are always answered. I don't know if we are alone in the universe. I don't know, I suppose, that it was actually an Air Force fuel dump in Southern Africa 10 years ago. In these things, I am agnostic. And yet it seems likely, and so I believe, that love exists before we come into this world and lives on in some way. That prayer matters whether or not somebody is listening. It matters to the one praying. That this is a big, big universe. And despite and because of that, we are never alone. stories we tell are manifold, and ultimately, often, the wrong question to ask is whether or not they're factually true. At least for me, from this pulpit, this place. The question is, what do the stories tell us about ourselves? And what do our different stories in this place tell us about each other? There's about 125 people in this room right now. I guarantee you that there are at least 150 opinions in this room <laughs> as to the nature of life, this place that we're in, our relationship with each other. And the most important thing that we do here in Unitarian Universalism is figure out how to make that work how we can have a multitude of opinions and live together. 
that I and you are in relationship, that those relationships matter, and that we have something to learn from each other. We are not alone. In the most basic sense of that sentence, that is the core of my belief. We are never alone. <laughs>